Welcome to the Wicked Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Dubinsky. What makes someone a wicked writer? On this podcast, you'll hear from writers who have something to say with a little New England twist. Wicked Writers is your outlet for lifting up your voice and expressing your most creative self. Whether you write for fun or professionally or don't know where to start in your writing journey, Wicked Writers is here for you. I hope you enjoy the conversation and stay wicked. I'm excited to have Emily Edwards on the pod today. She is the creator and host of the comedy podcast about books called Buck Boys of Literature. Yes, you heard that right. Uh, we're going to be talking to her today about her podcast, why it is aptly named that, and the work that she's doing to promote feminism um, and challenge the stereotypical male figures in literature. Welcome, Emily. Hi, how are you? Good. How about yourself? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Of course. So to get started, tell us about why you created the Fuckboys of Literature podcast. Ooh, well, it started as a joke, as most things that I do definitely do. So uh, a million years ago, the writer Sarah Benincasa asked on Twitter, what character from literature would you murder if you could? <laughs> it's a little bit of an un-PC question, but that's okay. And I said Jane Eyre, because I hate her. Jane Eyre, like the actual female character of Jane Eyre. I hate her with the red hot passion of 10,000 burning suns. And so someone kind of responded back to me of, you know, what about Rochester? And I was like, that's a given. <laughs> And so we started talking about the fuckboys of literature and someone said we should start a podcast or someone suggested I start a podcast. I didn't steal anybody's idea. And uh, it kind of went from there. So we've done all sorts of usual toxic dudes from literature. We're talking about Lord Byron was our first episode to Mr. Rochester to, uh, you know, just everybody you can think of. No one is safe. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable couple of years doing this. I've, I'm on my third season right now. And uh, it's just been a really great way to use the few skills that I got from my literature degree at Emerson in a much more fun and sort of exciting new way. So from that first episode till now, what has been the most surprising thing that you've discovered or, you know, rant you've gone on? Oh, wow. I think it's really amusing just how much people seem to hate a specific set of books. You know, you have the major Jane Austen fans who uh, I'm not like a huge, huge Jane Austen fan. So, you know, TBD on on how those are usually received. Uh, but most people understand that there's fuckboys in, in Jane Austen novels. And then, you know, you, you know, other major classics and major writers. But uh, there's just a certain subset of books that people really hated. And one of them is uh, John Knowles, a separate piece. My God, everybody when man, everybody hated that book. It's wild. It is absolutely wild. That is probably the most surprising sort of uh, response that I've gotten since doing the show for a couple seasons is just how much everyone hated a separate piece when they were assigned it in middle school or high school. So I never read that author, um, but I certainly oh, share. <laughs> yeah, I certainly share your uh, Jane Austen 
Yeah. No, that's a touch and go subject for us over on the podcast because uh, I get why people like her and I really get why people don't. So, you know, it, it's just, that's probably the most controversial opinion. I will say we did an episode on her no, her epistolary novella, Lady Susan, which came out after she died. It wasn't actually supposed to be released. Um, that was amazing. That was an absolutely phenomenal book because it was just basically about a rich woman wheeling and dealing to try to get more money. And it was fantastic. But most of her like romancy novels where everybody ends up married, I could take or leave them. Mm. So can you define what makes for a fuckboy in literature? There are common themes. Uh, you know, it usually has a lot to do with wealth and being born into wealth and status. Whiteness is certainly a huge part of it, though we're kind of starting to discuss uh, how, you know, the Western canon and Western expectations of wealth and status seep into areas that uh, were colonized by Europe. So that's sort of a fun little venture that we're getting into now that we're in our third season, you know, and you usually incredibly demanding and toxic relationships in romantic relationships. I won't say towards women because we do discuss a lot of LGBT characters on the show as well, but usually speaking, it's a very demanding and uncommunicative nature in romantic relationships. So those are probably the really, really big ones. In contrast, what would it look like if literature was more equitable in its romantic storytelling? Oh, that, you know, that's a really good question. Um, it, you know, it's really weird because I don't really like romance novels um, and it has nothing to do with the actual romance aspect of it. It really has to, a lot to do with the, the frisky scenes that romance is known for. I'm a bit of a prude when it comes to myself. Um, but when you're talking about romantic conflict, most people seem to think that conflict for romantic storylines have to come with a certain subset of abuse. And I think that that is something that is really starting to get sort of overthrown by modern romance writers, which will hopefully sort of trickle into other more less romantic aspects of, of literature. Hopefully, you know, lit thick and women's thick will start to acknowledge kind of what romance novels are starting to do now, which is kind of uh, have people who have been to their therapy, but they still have conflict. So that's something that I'm seeing that's really, really healthy in romance novels uh, nowadays that will hopefully make its way into more mainstream literature. I don't like to say mainstream literature. That wasn't the greatest phrasing because romance <laughs> is the best-selling genre in, in all of books. So it is plenty mainstream. It's just, you know, now I'm just rambling. Yeah, well, I definitely like, I think that I didn't grow up enjoying reading but I like now more that I can explore indie mm -hmm. the indie side of literature and it's probably to a degree of the fact that it isn't these strict gender roles or isn't talking yeah. about romance necessarily as the yeah. center point uh, of the book yeah you know I think uh, when I was a kid romance novels, which is where a lot of trends of understanding romantic relationships sort of come from and trickled out, out into other genres. It was still caught in the tropes of like bodice rippers and assault fantasies. And that's really not cool because, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you still yet were not supposed to have women who wanted to be in sexual or romantic relationships. They were always supposed to, you know, in it for the ring and nothing mm -hmm. else. And that's really, really taken a 100 80 degree about face in the last so, you know, it's really exciting to see that uh, now that these sorts of healthier 
sort of romance novels are chart topping now, you know, the publishing industry will start to hopefully, fingers crossed, everybody <laughs> uh, expect that from, from other things. You know, like lit fic is always a different world, literary fiction, you know, when it's like stuff that's gunning for prizes, that's always going to probably have a modicum of, of despair and torture and emotional distress in it. Um, but uh, fingers crossed, it doesn't always have to be, you know, like uh, we've been seeing a huge crop of new books showing up that are really about, um, you know, they might be about struggles with identity, but they're not conflicts of identity. And that's a really, really lovely thing to see as a reader. So let's let's turn it to your writing. Can you talk a little bit about any writing projects you might be working on? Sure. I am one of the very lucky few that in the last over quarantine, I actually managed to land an agent, which is really, really nice. Uh, Yeah. After many, many years of struggling and querying and all sorts of manuscripts that are sitting in the proverbial drawer. So she is shopping around a mystery novel that I've been working on for the last couple of years. That's really exciting. So TBD on that. And I have all sorts of other things in the hopper as most people who have a creative brain happen to have. So I'm writing a second sort of uh, installment of the mystery series, which is a 1950s Girl Friday detective. It's very, it's not literary fiction and it's my favorite thing to write. So, you know, uh, I'm not anybody who's ever going to win an award or a man Booker prize and that's okay. I like writing stuff. And then I have a fun fantasy series that I've been toying with for a couple of years, which is strange because I'm not a fantasy reader. So we will see Mm. where that goes. I'm very rigid in stuff I like, um, which is something I've noticed a lot while doing the podcast. So I'll start a book and it immediately doesn't sit well with me. And it's very hard for me to like get over my intense (laughs) literary prejudice. So I guess my question is what inspired you to write? Were you writing and reading at the same time? You know, where does that inspiration come from? I am one of those dorks that probably sounds really pretentious when I say like, I've never not been a writer. I'm one of those annoying pretentious people that probably has never not been a writer. I've always been writing stories um, in addition to doing schoolwork and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's very hard for me to turn off you know, the writer versus reader side of the brain. Um, I'm very lucky that I do get to read a lot and sort of source ideas and get inspired from everything that I do read, whether or not it's um, a positive inspiration or a negative inspiration. I think that's one thing that people discount is sometimes you'll read a book and you'll be like, Jesus, I never want to write something like that. Um, So, you know, that's been very helpful with doing the podcast. I will admit that my time and energy has been skewed much more towards reading over the last couple of years than it has been towards writing. Um, as you can imagine, when I'm reading probably one classic novel at least a week, um, it get you know you have to put a lot of headspace into doing that. But you know the other good side is that because I don't write anything that's particularly literary you know, I get to just sit down and and play with ideas and play with puzzles. That's one of the really fun parts about writing mysteries is that it is literally just creating a puzzle for people. And uh, if you enjoy solving them, then you probably will enjoy writing them. So that's one of my favorite things to kind of do. You know, literally, I just released an episode on Hercule Poirot, 
uh, Agatha Christie's famous gentleman sleuth from Belgium and with a very good friend of mine. And it was really nice to sit down with a bunch of Poirot books and just kind of figure out how they're done. Um, which is something I probably never considered before I started doing a podcast of just like, I always thought everything was a story and uh, yes, everything is just a story, but uh, you know, figuring out the layers and peppering in clues and, and what is workable in a mystery and what isn't what the expectations of each genre are stuff like that. It's, it's, it's really fun to sort of examine and parse out in a way that I never would have done without having the reading side of my brain being so tapped into uh, day in and day out. And you bring up an interesting point about how these novels are structured. Um, and that certainly is what has gotten me more into reading because I too have always found that writing is my strength. Um, but if I think about it more from a structural point of view, it becomes more interesting because it's something that I can learn to do. So I wonder, you know, what have you learned about the structure of different genres? You definitely talked about the, the pieces of the puzzle for mystery. Um, are there any other ones that you want to touch on? What's very strange is that when it comes to most of the books that I do in the show, they are not considered genre fiction. You know, they are just simply the classics and, you know, um, they don't get spliced as much as uh, genre fiction does when it comes to expectations of what's supposed to happen and how it's supposed to happen. Um, no one looks at Jane Eyre and goes like, hmm, why did Bronte do it this way? And what do I expect for Jane Eyre? You know, like that doesn't really happen. People mostly just talk about like the symbolism of, I don't know, something that happened in Jane Eyre. And I feel like um, it's not really considered, it's not usually dissected as though it is a romance novel or as my guest on the episode that we did on it suggested a teen horror novel, which I thought was brilliant. Um, so that's really nice is when you can put different lenses on things and sort of assess classic literature that's usually not considered a genre piece as a genre. So that's something that we've been exploring a lot more. I don't know if I take as much attention on structure uh, when it comes for the show, for stuff that I read for the show, as I probably should, you know, usually when it's just something that I write, I will do like the the structure, you know, the expectations of it, of just like, you need the the mystery reveal. And, you know, I, I don't know if I do take as much because I, this is going to sound awful, but I do really come from a lot of places as though like writing is supposed to be fun and reading it is supposed to be fun. That's first and foremost, all I want to do. So I do resent a lot when people are like, well, when I write, I think about the symbolism of, you know, the pencil in her room. And I'm just like, no, mm -mm, I tap out. I can't do it. It's just not who I am as a reader or a writer. So uh, maybe that's why my work suffers, but you know, TBD. And I try really hard not to get too esoteric about reading or writing. I want to know how you feel about things. I want to know how I make you feel. And I really don't know if there's anything more important than that when I read or when I write. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point about how reading and writing are supposed to be fun. And I think in a school setting, it becomes more of an obligation than fun. And I appreciate that your podcast is examining a lot of those pieces of literature that were assigned in school and, you know, addressing the problematic elements there. 
You know, I think that uh, it's, I went to public school until college um, and I don't blame teachers for not being able to make literature fun because they do, you know, like most public school teachers, they have an agenda, like a curriculum that they have to stick to. And, you know, it's like, I'm not blaming the teachers at all. Oh, absolutely (laughs) not. Yeah. Like it's a tough gig. Like I, you know, being a writer growing up, everybody was like, oh, so you're going to be an English teacher. And it's like, no, I do not have the patience for that. Are you kidding me? Um, I'm not a good enough person for that. So, you know, like it's a, it's a tough gig to try to make texts fun. And uh, especially certain texts that kids are not mature enough to understand, but they're assigned. Like, I loved reading The Scarlet Letter, but I'm one of the few people in the world who freaking love The Scarlet Letter. But I also know that when I was 17 and I, or 16 when I was reading it, like, I was already like a dyed in the wool feminist who was like already ready to like upend the church and, and, you know, like destroy all of puritanical society. So, like, I got something different out of it that your run in the mill, like, non militant feminist probably wouldn't get out of it. And most, be- and it's written in like the worst language. And it's just, you just imagine with everybody with buckles on their hats and everybody's miserable and everything is terrible. And it's like, yeah, I get why most people don't like it. It wasn't until college where I was really, really starting to get into texts. But, you know, the other problem with college is you don't have a lot of time in college. So there were only so many things that I could read in addition to like working full time and all that other stuff that happened during college. So, you know, I remember reading, I read a lot of plays in college whenever it was like your literature class can be a play. And I was like, yes, because they take (laughs) 45 minutes to an hour to read. That's what I did with my like junior and senior papers in English class in high school. I was like, I don't have the patience for a whole book. I'm going to do a play Tennessee. Yeah, it's like Middle March, which is 900 pages long, or Tartuffe, which took like 90 minutes. So like, I know where I was going. Also, I love Tartuffe. It is one of my favorite plays. It's just like absolutely fantastic. So like, you know, and I also lean heavily towards comedy when it comes to things that I want to read. Like, I love satire. I want to read you obviously making fun of the society you live in. Like, I don't ever, if you want me to figure out how society works or what society's ills are, you better put it in through the lens of comedy or I'm not going to understand it. So, you know, that's the other, which like, let's talk about stuff that's not respected. It's like, every comedy that's ever been written. So unless it was like Samuel Beckett. So like, I also do err on the side of just like I mentioned before, just having fun with it is imperative. And uh, I just don't, and that's all I want to do. So do you have any advice for people who might be either looking to start their own podcast on literature or you know, trying to go through that process of querying and finding an agent. Querying is the hardest, most dejecting thing that will ever happen to you in your life. You've spent years probably writing this thing that you think is absolutely brilliant and dreading over it forever and ever and trying to make it perfect. And literally you will write pleading letters to 80 or more people going, please, won't you love my baby? And they say, no. (laughs) Um, And it's the most heart-wrenching thing that will ever happen. I will personally, I can personally say that I appreciated much more scathing no's than I did of just like, thank you so much for your time. You know, like the form Mm -hmm. letter, that was the 
that was the most dejecting thing in the world of just like, this isn't a right fit for me, but I'm sure it's great. You know, it's just like, oh, just, I'd rather you just punch me in the face, but alas, you know, people are much too polite for that. And I don't blame them. So querying is incredibly depressing. You know, um, you will lose steam. There were times where I just didn't query for months on end just because like, you know, my ego was kicked very heartily in the stomach and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I really probably queried this first book probably on and off for two years, um, each time working on it, hopefully, you know, getting feedback and working on it further. Just a very, very difficult process. The pitch process that your agent takes on for you is slightly less dejecting, but not by much. So, I mean, like, When people say like, you have to really want it, you have to want it so bad. You feel crazy, honestly, just like a rabid raccoon levels of wanting it, which like, if it doesn't mean a lot to you, then like, skip it, publish it to Kindle. That's what I did with my first two books. You know what I mean? So you have to really, really, really be prepared for querying. And I don't think there is anything that can prepare you properly for it. At least I didn't experience anything that properly prepared me for it. So there's that. Starting a podcast is much easier and much kinder. All I can tell you is that like, man, if you love your own opinion and think that you're great, podcasting is the place (laughs) for you. It was literally a self-esteem boost for me of just kind of like, I know what I'm talking about and I feel like I'm smart. So let's start a podcast and just talk to people about stuff. And it is incredibly heartening until you get your first really crummy review. And then you just get, I don't know about you, but my main motivator and reaction to things is spite. So um, when, you know, I get a really lousy review or just some absolute moron dude is just kind of like in the comments saying nasty things. I just get really burned up. I turn into like a little steam engine of anger. And then I'm just like, well, I'm going to do it better and more. So that's, you know, if you need a creative outlet in these times where you have a lot of anger and don't know what to do with it, start a podcast. (laughs) It's a podcast for angry people. It's a riot, literally. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, some of those people who provide those negative reviews, what do you think, especially the the dudes saying stuff, what do you think are some of the undertones there? Uh, There is such a stark contrast between those who are obviously dudes and those who are obviously not. I use dudes very specifically. Y'all know exactly who we're talking about. You know, when it's girls, and I assume younger girls who leave me bad comments, it's usually because like we scathed on a character they really, really like, and I don't blame them. Like, you know, it hurts when people don't like stuff I like too. So you know what? Feel free to leave me a lazy review because I've made fun of Ron Weasley or something like that. I don't really care. But dudes, man, it is a, uh, forgive me for using the word because it might bring them to you like moths to a flame, but it is like a real like Gamergate like subset of just kind of like, it comes from a real nasty place. I can deal with like, actual critique. You know what I mean? Where it's just kind of like, well, you said this one thing, but you don't know the actual historical context. Yeah. I don't know the historical context. I'm an idiot. So, um, I don't mind that at all. Like I will totally admit when I am like factually wrong or am I getting like the wrong thing out of something because I don't have all the information. I never have all the information. That's fine. But, uh, you know, like, uh, I get a lot of stuff where it's like, 
again, I will reiterate the title of my podcast is fuck boys of literature. So you know what you're getting. And my favorite thing is when I give them exactly what they should be getting and they get mad. (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. That's just the most delightful thing in the world. So you just make fun of them on Twitter. It's fantastic. Well, I like that it drives you to want to do more because I think that there's, you know, cancel culture that is like, all right, you should be out. But just because you're dissecting these problematic relationships and characters, you know, the people who put those super negative comments, you know, it might not be worth worth dealing with them. But I think that maybe you also get people who come to your defense as well. Yeah, that's been really nice is that especially on YouTube, because I put all my shows on YouTube as well, because most people, a lot of people don't like podcatchers. And man, that is a cesspool. That is just an absolute cesspool (laughs) of dudes. But the good news is, is that because what the show does is something that people really do emotionally connect with. You know, a lot of people don't realize they've had these thoughts and feelings tucked away since high school. And the show really taps into like, you know, like we haven't done this yet, but like Huck Finn didn't sit right with you when you were 15, but you didn't have the words exactly yet to articulate why. And so a lot of this feels like therapy where you go back and you go like, why did I hate this so much when I was as a child. And it's like, well, because like, there's a laundry list of stuff that's wrong with it, you know? And it's like, it really, people really emotionally connect with the show in that way. So especially if you are someone who was always sort of a progressive thinking, but again, didn't have the skills or, or language to express those feelings when you were probably in public underfunded public high school, like I was, you know, it, it's really become sort of a rallying cry for people. And it's just really funny to have, you know, cause I use my name, you know what I mean? Like I don't hide behind another name. I use my name for everything. My Twitter handles, I introduce myself. I talk about where I live, maybe not the specific street, but I talk about, you know, living in Los Angeles and stuff like that. So I don't hide. And that's one thing that actually really bothers me when we do get nasty reviews or YouTube comments. It's just always just like Star Wars referenced, you know, like 6969. And you're always just like, you coward. So it's been really nice to sort of, I screen grab them all. I'll share the really egregious ones on Twitter. And most of the time, it's just really nice to know that you're not alone when people call you really nasty names. I was just like, you feel kind of like you have your, your gang of friends behind you who are just like, that is not a correct critique. That is not a nice thing to say. This person's just working through their issues and your comment section, and you don't have to listen to it. It's very affirming in a way that I never thought I would have a community as an adult. You know, like when you're walking through your high school corridors and someone says something really nasty to you, like hopefully you'll have a friend by your side that'll kind of like help with the situation. You don't get that a lot as an adult. You know what I mean? When you go to work and your boss is just like, hey, your work is crap. Like, what do you do? You just turn around and go like, I guess my work is crap. Um, But when you're making a podcast, which like is a lot of work for no reward, it is really nice to have the community after a little while that'll be there to be like, they'll be your little girl gang. It's nice. It's just in a way that I never thought would happen as a 35 year old adult woman. Right. That's really what it's all about is finding your community for sure. And how do people get in touch with you, Emily? 
Uh, you know, we are mostly on Twitter um, at fuckboysablit. That's B-O-I-S. And you can find all of our links and things like that at fuckboysablit.com. You know, I'm on Twitter all the time because it's just a really lovely and terrible place to be <laughs> most of the day. But by and large, like it's just been really, really fun to explore that and, uh, you know, put out a new show every week. Great. Definitely tune in to the Fuckboys of Literature podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank you, Emily, for your your humor and your humility and honesty. We're just going to go with all the alliteration. Sorry. No, I, I'm a big alliteration girl. So here we are. You know, it was great to talk with you. And I think something in this podcast is always about writing and how it can challenge the status quo and picking that apart with you is fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that uh, in the, you know, the Bon Mott from Dead Poet Society of just like written word is the only thing that has ever changed the world. So might as well analyze it and have fun with it. Thank you for listening, Wicked Writers or Wicketeers, as some may call themselves. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.wickedwriters.org. You can visit us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can look up Wicked Writers. I'm also on Threadless selling some merch and hope that you like... uh, the show enough to buy some merch and that's wickedwriters.threadless.com as well as we have a newsletter i try and keep it uh, weekly or bi-weekly trying to not flood your inboxes but sometimes i can't help it and the website for the newsletter is wickedwriters.substack.com and as always feel free to email me at hello at wickedwriters.org stay wicked